Now it's True Wealth presented by Little John Financial Services. Here is David Littlejohn with True Wealth on News Radio 1240 KQEN. All right, gang, it is that time of the week. Thanks for tuning in on your best Tuesday you've had all week. I am your host, Dave Littlejohn, and guest in studio today, Mr. Derek Simmons. I'm always pleased to be here. I enjoy when you come to visit, uh, you know, Derek is, so I guess I can disclose, you know, buddy of mine. I don't know. I don't have a key to your house. Like not, not, not that kind of buddy. But you did. Last week we had my oldest son on, and you carried uh, Alex around when he was a baby. So you've known, you've it's known true. each other We've a long got a time. History. I, I think if I came into your house and opened the fridge and looked for something, you would probably just be like, what are you looking for? It's on the left. Yeah, yeah. yeah I don't. I don't think it would be like weird. It'd just be like, well, you know, that's where. You, so that. So I. That's how that works. Um, so thanks for coming today. Also, Derek happens to know the law. So. A little bit. I've spent quality time uh, falling asleep while reading it. Yes, I, I often wonder. There is a lot of reading. There is. This is not a job you want to get into if you're not interested in reading. Yeah, I. I mean, I do a ton of reading, although. The stuff that I look at that keeps me awake makes other people fall asleep. I mean, I can look at charts and graphs and actually find them interesting, where most people are like, yeah, that, um, oh my gosh, I thought I was awake, but I wasn't. So, yeah, you know, I, I like the actual numbers. Charts and graphs are harder for me to read. But none of that is nearly as interesting as frivolous legal arguments those are say, always yeah, say if you said spreadsheets we were done for the day. Like, like, <laughs> no. i love spreadsheets there's some people that do and i'm like oh man that we, is the worst way to digest data we didn't bring an accountant or we'd have the full set it's true it's true all right well look uh we're gonna talk about all kinds of stuff today if you're tuning in for the first time uh, i'm gonna remind you that we got lots of episodes on podcast derek's been on the show before we've talked about everything from go-karts yay to estate planning well, yeah, also, also, also yay, yay, but, yeah. but for somebody else, usually you, it's the... You always start out, that conversation always starts out with, assume you die, yeah. and so that one's less fun than go-kart. True, true enough, true enough. Uh, so let's, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to talk a little bit about the investment markets today. Uh, I've gotten a number of questions, and a lot of, you know, stuff is all over the board right now, and today I... I'm going to do my best to the nonpartisan. That, that's not the point. But some of the things that are going on policy-wise, and what does that mean for us as investors? And I want to talk a little bit about investments today on the show. Uh, what? That's crazy. I know, right? Here we are thinking, well, true wealth, we, we got to talk about everything but the investments, right? No. No, we talk about Every once two. in a while. And this is not intended to be something that's going to, I don't think it's going to bore everybody, right? I don't, because it's, I think it's very, very relevant. So let me start with this premise. I think it's hard to get clear information today. It, you sure get a lot of information though. Right. It's, that is a great point. I had friends of mine, and this was all the way back in the prior millennium. Right, so back in the 1900s, back before the turn of not only right. this century but the one before. Yes, so but we're talking over 20 years ago when people said that the democratization of information is upon us. Right, that it is no longer an information advantage for the professional; it's a matter of 
filtering the abundance of information to get what is relevant. This is the same thing that you do when you drive all the time. Driving is not learning to pay attention. It's learning to ignore things that aren't relevant. Fair enough. I've been explaining this to my children for years now, and it took me a long time to figure that out. Right. And driving is about training skills to happen automatically without thinking about them. And then you only pay attention to the moving things and only some of those. Mm-hmm. But you learn to ignore things. So that's filtering out the, the noise from the information. Right. Have whole separate conversations about how our filter system works because it's interesting, right? Uh, like when it when you turn it off or on, ooh, that's, that's wild. But it's hard today for me, even as a professional, to sort through information. And a lot of this, here's my theory behind it, okay? My theory is it's hard because the revenue model behind information makes it hard. Interesting. Here's what I mean, right? That's a fancy way to say most of our information comes from media sources, and the media sources are competing for our attention because they're funded by an advertising model most of the time. There are some subscription models, right, where people pay a regular fee so that they get a type of news, but even that to a certain extent, has something, and this I'm going to appeal to the journalist in you for a minute. Very Eric. good. Editorial tilt or editorial bias, okay? And they're really the same thing, but bias sounds more vindictive. Right. Uh, whereas tilt is just something that says, well, we know our audience, and so we appeal to an audience by writing to their interests, okay? Sure. And that's what editorial largely does. But on the internet, right, so right now, on you're listening to this radio show right now. And this show is effectively something that we can disclose that we pay for the show. What? Yes, right? I mean, to be here. I think people should totally of, send us money. That's what I think. Well, for the radio station itself and for the media company that owns it, the advertisers are what, what pays for everything. Sure. Right? So the content matters. The content needs to be interesting enough to you as a listener to pay attention. Or you go somewhere else. And then the advertising doesn't work for the advertiser because there's no audience. Uh, and, and it's one of two things, right? No audience or terrible ads. Right? That could be true also. Right. But if it doesn't work, they don't buy more ads. And if they don't buy more ads, there's no revenue. And then the organization ceases to exist. Right. So it's a simple enough business model. But how does it work if you're in the internet? You have to click on something. Well, how do you incentivize somebody to click on something? You don't tell them the answer. Yeah, you're, yeah, they have to want to click on it, right? And usually that involves either information they were already seeking or something distracting and interesting enough to catch their eye. And that could be distracting through jarring. It could be, I mean, this is the, the, the stuff that you typically see, right? It, it could be racy. It could be inflammatory. But it's the clickbait model. Yeah, something suggestive. Right. In and some so, way. So you want to hear about it, like right before the show, right before, like as, as, as the intro music was on. I had one of my uh, media sources up and I'm looking at it and it says the CDC issues new eviction moratorium. And I thought, wait, and I think I asked you, I said, can they do that? Right. And so now I, I click through and I want to learn more about it. And it's like, well, you know, the last time this happened, the CDC and, and just so everybody knows, right, what's an, an eviction moratorium? You want to define that because you're the lawyer? Yeah. Well, an eviction is when your landlord throws you out for not paying rent or some other nefarious bad thing you've done. 
And a moratorium is when they say, hey, landlord, you can't throw anybody out, whether they pay rent or not. Right. Now, this creates an interesting problem for landlords, right? Because if you... It's not very interesting. They just don't get any money. And so if they owe money, it's bad. And if they don't owe money, then they're living on it. And that's also bad. Exactly. And so, and then they can't replace the tenant because they can't get the one that's living there out of that. Right. So the moratorium says, you, you know, you can't kick the person out. Well, to the person that's not getting kicked out, hooray, right? I mean, they feel pretty good about that. Uh, as this is hot off the press stuff, but I'm going, well, how do they do that? And the answer is, well, there's a new variant of virus, right? So it was the original coronavirus, uh, Corona-19. COVID-19. COVID-19, a coronavirus, right? And now they have the... Uh, Delta the, variant. The, the Delta variant. And they're saying, well, that's new. So we're going to create a new and that one originated. Moratorium. That one originated in Animal House, if I'm not mistaken. <laughs> it may have. <laughs> now you're now you're either dating our audience or uh, dating us. <laughs> I'm okay either way. Yeah. So, nevertheless, this is. I mean, it was appealing to me as an information seeker and as somebody that uh, has a lot of real estate investors. I do some real estate investing myself, and I'm looking at this, going, "Well, what does this mean?" Right. It's back to my theory, though, or my, my earlier question. How do we discern good information from bad or how do we discern just where it's coming from? And what does it mean? Is it an opinion piece or not? Is it what, what facts are facts versus what is stuff that's getting my attention? Because as I read into the article, it's I don't even know if it's just proposed or it's happened or what. If it's you know going to be voted on, don't know anything. Right. They leave a lot up to my imagination. I have to read it to find you out do. more. So how do we as investors unpack this? Well, the, the CDC um, information or general information that an investor wants to know? I think yes. Okay. Right? I well, mean, historically, you started by considering the source. So when I was a kid, my parents always said, consider the source. And if it's the New York Times, I was in pretty good shape. If it was... Um, the Inquirer. <laughs> if it was the Inquirer, they, didn't, they just shook their head and looked at me. If it was the Encyclopedia, they'd say... That's probably good information, but it may be 30 years old. Mm-hmm. So you would consider the source. Later, when I got a little bit more sophisticated, the question was, where in the publication does it appear? If it's a New York Times editorial page, it may be there to spur questions or share a viewpoint, but not citable information. I am so glad I did not have to learn how to cite sources in the age of Wikipedia. I know, right? Because well, it's, it's, it's almost it's, credible, almost right, c- kind of, sorta, but it's really difficult to to cite it definitively. Well, and it's a little bit dangerous too. This is sort of like the nine out of ten scientists agree, right? You go, well, which scientist did you select for your sampling? Right. So it does matter. Uh, so. Here's why I bring this all up. I don't want to spend an entire show talking about how do we discern information, but I want to talk about what's going on in the marketplace. And with all of this sort of confusion around information, what are some ways that we can filter, cut through it, and get to meaningful things as investors that may influence our behaviors, our strategies, and so forth? But that will be after the break. Yes, it will be after the break. So... 
Yep, and there's the music, so we've officially cued it. Good job. All right, so for the rest of you, stick around if you're curious. Uh, how does this affect me? Uh, well, we may or may not cover more important stuff like that, but we got to take a break first. This is Dave Littlejohn. And Derek Simmons. And you're listening to True Wealth on News Radio 1240 KQEN. Hey gang, welcome back to the True Well Show. Dave Littlejohn in studio with Derek Simmons. Okay, good cue. Good. We're getting it better. I'm, I'm and better. starting to learn. It's almost like one person talking. So, when when we last left our heroes, we were discussing uh, really the the media cycle. But what we wanted to talk about is how this is affecting the markets and what's going on. And I want to talk about some themes here. But just a reminder: if you want to get caught up and you missed the first segment. Grab our podcast. It'll be available tomorrow. Go to littlejohnfs.com. Check under the Educate tab. It'll be posted there, and there's a whole history of them. If you want to hear the other conversations I've had with Derek, oh, they are there. You just have to go digging. So, Derek, we've talked about this theme on air before, the theme of the the cost of capital, right? Like, like what what's driving the, the current market right now? What do well, we think is driving it? So driving the current market may be a bigger topic than I'm ready to weigh in on, but it does seem like money is still cheap. You can still get money pretty cheaply, and that leads you to do things like buy stuff and invest. Yes. Uh, it's it, What's interesting to me— And it leads you not to save it. Right. If money is very cheap, you want to buy assets. People have asked me a lot of the time— uh, or, I guess they ask me a lot of the time, too. They ask me often. What should you do if we're going to go through a period of hyperinflation? And that would be turn cash into assets that you can sell later at the higher value. Exactly. You want to own assets that appreciate. But there's a disconnect in timing around appreciation, right? Because you have to well, did we talk about this this morning? This does like not sound did. familiar. All right. So the issue is to the early adopter Right. The person that if, if, if inflation is happening, the first person to raise prices has better pricing power, but they lose market share. Right. The person that's late to the game loses margin while gaining market share until they have to reprice. But eventually it's it's hard on everybody. Right. Because you're either losing market share or you're losing margin when you go through an inflationary cycle. And what it does is it changes behaviors. Right. It causes consumers to start substituting what they buy. They choose one place over another based on price. And so inflation is challenging because the repricing process can be painful. It will be. Yeah. Uh, I will say I don't know that we have. Well, in certain things, we could almost argue that it's hyperinflationary, except that it's hard to argue when, for example, gas prices on a percentage basis are way higher than they were, say, 18 months ago. Right. And they're way higher. I mean, you're talking. 50% or more, higher, 60% higher almost in some cases. But that's not totally uncharacteristic for gas prices, right? It's a commodity that does vary in price more so than other areas of the economy. Yeah. Uh, housing is up a lot. Now, this one's more significant because it's a huge ticket item for people. Although the last month, it looks like housing sales are slowing now compared to the prior month. So that's an interesting dynamic. Mortgage rates have largely been improving since about March. They've been they've been improving and getting better for the customer, the consumer. Really? Evidently, I had I had lunch with a 
I won't I won't use their name today on air, but I did have uh, a lunch today with uh, a, a mortgage broker in town. We were discussing this, and he said, "Yeah, largely the rates have been improving since March." But it's got to be on the margins because mortgage rates have been outstanding for oh like, yeah three I or mean four the, years. The, well marginal sure, but you know going from say three point three percent back down to three, oh it's a ten percent move. Yeah, that would right? be a big one. So it, you know it's ten percent on that, but you're looking and going well it's only point three. Yeah, but it's ten percent of the total, you know, change from three point three down to three, or or wherever the numbers are. Right. But, okay. So mortgages have been improving. Mortgage rates have been improving for customers. For yeah, so the the cost of capital, right? The availability of money is high, but we're we're just seeing the system show us signs of inflation. And my concern is that at some point, what we think is happening and what's actually happening disconnect, right? We keep did hearing. You ju- did you just connect this to information? <laughs> you crazy man. What? I would never. I might do it. So think about for a minute. We've had on the show many times a discussion of the cost of capital and how the Federal Reserve has been behaving. Right. right? And the Federal Reserve has been really clear for several years now in their attempt to communicate how they are viewing the marketplace and what they are attempting to do with interest rates. Right. right. They've done a lot of forecasting and they put a lot of data out there. And if you're willing to do the homework, and this is one of those where I would say the source of information is pretty straightforward. Right. The Federal Reserve, by its nature, is a board of governors and everybody gets to talk and you can go read what they said. <laughs> so you get the triangulation from what they all said. That's a pretty clear source. So. I like those sources, and I like to see the behaviors. Well, the Fed has said they believe that most of the inflation problems that we see are transitory. Right. Okay. So they're transitory implies that they're not permanent. And so they're saying that the transitory nature of these is the um, supply chain problems caused by COVID. That is the big driver that they are claiming, and they believe that that should normalize and that uh, we've, we've seen a, a lot of recovery in the employment market. Uh, July was supposed to be the, the beginning. I think July 6th, but don't quote me on it, was the end of the enhanced unemployment benefits. They went back to the more typical unemployment amounts. There's been the extra $300 a week that was previously part of that. Right. So that has been, as I understand it, has been uh, cut off. And so the idea would be that people would start to, if, if they weren't in the workforce, that there would be an incentive for them to return to available jobs, and that about 85% of the jobs, again, these are numbers that I'm pulling from other interviews, so I don't have a specific source I can cite, but about 85% of the jobs uh, have been recovered since pre-pandemic. Those are good signs. Uh, the tricky sign is that it appears that companies are burning more through inventory than they are through creating more. So I don't know that we're seeing an improvement in the supply chains yet. So we're just eating up the giant overstock that we had built up from when nobody was selling anything. Correct. And so that's the larger concern now is that do we have an improving supply chain that will sort of spur the engine of the economy and move it forward? Or are we kind of burning through the remaining lighter fluid that we have? And I'm still seeing, I'm driving around town and I'm seeing fast food places that just don't have enough workers to stay open. Right. It, that's just weird. It is weird. But that and that may go back to some of the pricing and the incentives around unemployment 
and, and I do, I call it an, it, you, it, I call it an incentive. I realize for some people that'll make you mad. Right? Some people hear that and they go, I don't like you. It's not an incentive. That's a unemployment benefit. When you say incentive, in. what does it, what are you saying that well, it incents? It, this the term is a pernicious incentive is actually when you have a policy that encourages the behavior that you didn't want to see gotcha okay so if you pay somebody more to not work than to work they're not yeah, going to work a pernicious incentive right? all right and so that's the issue is did the unemployment benefit exceed somebody's actual earnings and if it did that would be a problem it definitely monkeys with the market Absolutely. you can't figure out what actual prices should be if the government is propping up folks who in the market uh, in a way that the market can't respond to. Yeah. And what I really think is going on is it's not just money supply. That's talked about a lot by economists. And I always say that economists are kind of funny to me because for most of us, you listen to an economist and you go like, uh-huh, uh-huh, uh-huh. I'm going to go now. Because like they, they're not speaking a normal language. Okay. Some are really talented, and they can break it down into layman terms, and it makes a little bit more sense. And those guys make millions of dollars a year as speakers. They could. They could. Uh, the The issue is sometimes you get into wonky land, like, oh, here's all the data, but then we disconnect it from what's actually happening. That's my concern. Right. Is that the Fed says, we have all this data that says it's transitory, and then we have a curveball thrown at us like, oh, there's a new variant of COVID, and... It's aggressive, and so the governments then say, right, we're hearing things like, oh, we're not going to lock things down again. But if that changes, and who knows, right, who knows, but if it did, we had a whole you know, 2.0 version of this challenge where we go, wait a second, we burned through all the excess inventory, we've broken the supply chains. And then we shut down the supply yeah, line again. And then we shut the supply line down. Meanwhile, we've also adjusted everybody's pay way up. And now we have a really painful situation where the revenue dries up for all the companies and you just start seeing a cascade of events. You know, if we were economic lab rats, this would be a fun experiment. But we're not. <laughs> no, we're really That's living That's the painful it. part. And... Uh, <laughs> It's hard to get to right or wrong, but here's here's the challenge. From from where I sit or stand, as it were, in the studio today, the problem comes down to how do you determine what you're how you're going to solve the problem, and it's that it's a complex problem. So you don't solve. There's not you try to solve one thing and another thing you don't squirts pull, out. You don't pull one lever. You pull multiple levers and you pull them in varying amounts. And then you, at this point, you're still hoping that it works. Right. You don't know for sure. Yes. And and there will be disagreement. Right. I mean, I think no, there that's won't. The... <laughs> oh, sorry. Just <laughs> trying that out. Well, I will I will say that I've been on record as disagreeing with some of the policy decisions, but I have I largely view things through a, a more uh, actuarial lens and a little less human when I don't know the humans. Like if I know the person, I'm quite empathetic. I don't want any. I, I always say like, I'm not trying to march grandma to you know off to her demise. Right. That is not my mission. But I also don't want to um, unfairly burden another group. And I say unfairly. I usually think about like our kids, for example. So I don't think it's fair to have the kids take one for the team when they were never a target. Yeah, it's this. It's the scope of your mission. Yes. If your mission is to 
um, take that hill, you're going to worry about every single guy under your command. If your mission is to capture that country and establish the peace, you're not going to worry about a, a few casualties. You're going to say that's the cost of doing business. Yeah, it's it's the and and that's it. It's uh, decisions as generals versus decisions as lieutenants. Yeah, and I, I've always said generals send troops to war, lieutenants send their friends. It's different, right? Doesn't mean that they're not going to do it, but that's what happens. So this is this is where you tend to come from is the actuarial general. Yes. Level. Yes. Yeah. I really do. Uh, it's probably not something that's uh, sellable to the public at large, because the idea that you could say, "Well, you know, we're just not going to be able to save everybody," they go, "What? You can't do that." They go, "But we could say we could save everybody and not save everybody. Does that better?" <laughs> so I don't know. Uh, I don't think it's because I'm a bad person. I think it's just because I live in this fiduciary world where you have to disclose everything. Well, we'll, we'll have we'll have everybody vote on whether you're a good person or not. After this break. Okay, well, then we'll take a break. Um, and did. We did. Yeah, so that nailed it. We got the music. Uh, when we come back, we'll be covering all kinds of more fun. Maybe not even about the market this time, though. I don't know. But Go karts. Yeah. Go karts. All right, we'll talk go karts. But we're going to take a break first. This is Dave Littlejohn. And Derek Simmons. And you're listening to True Wealth on News Radio 1240 KQEN. All right, gang, welcome back to the True Wealth Radio Show, where we have now gotten past our hard break that we've learned, where it, we get yeah get national news injected in there. It's important. I know. It makes it feel like the show is official. All right. So as we continue to move into uh, new and uh, more exploratory content. So I have, you know, you brought this up at the break. I actually will touch this one. I know this is like one of those, you're not supposed to touch this thing on the radio, but I'm going to. Because I have three kids, and they are, and you have still in ho at home the same. I still right? have three. Like, uh, so we're going back to school, and now we have this Delta variant, and it seems like all the policies are back up in the air again. It's true. I the last thing I heard was every all the kids are going to go; they're all going to wear masks. And with Delta going around, vaccinated folks and unvaccinated folks apparently can transmit it. Now, this is not uh, a happy thing, and particularly it's not happy for me. I have a diabetic child. Right. And so, so she's at greater risk, but you don't really have any choice. I mean, the other choice is distance learning when nobody else is doing distance learning, and that was a real struggle for us last year. Yeah. Well, I think distance learning was, you know, we weren't ready for it. To just say, oh, and you need to do this now. Make it up as you go. Right. It's trying to build an airplane while it's flying. And to be fair, I mean, the school system was in the same position. Well, that's what I'm referring yeah. to. All of the school systems were in this position. I think that was very, very challenging. And so uh, I think there are some things that deserve some credit. I think there are some things that you kind of look back on and go, wait, whose idea was that? I mean, like like truly, there was some stuff that was just really clumsy. And the thing that that was tough is that whether we meant to or not, we really, uh, there was advantage, disadvantage, lack of parity, right? I mean, like we really, like when everybody comes to the school, it's kind of like, well, we're all here. We all sort of get access to the resources. When you are not in person, it's, well, who's helping? Or what's your band, what, what kind of internet connection do you have or not have? And what's the environment that you're studying in? What are the distractions or lack thereof? Those were all really, really, 
uh, different for everybody. You know, which... and having gone through that, having gone through that, and my kids were not lacking for resources, except for maybe parent parental time. You know, that's the one thing they were missing. But the, uh, I think they're better off back in school. I, I, I'm sure they're better off back in school. And yet I'm still petrified about, you know, if my kid, one of my kids brings home the virus. Right. And, and masking is going to help, but kids are kids. It's going to be a tough challenge. Well, and what we know is that, and I'm not, I'll just, we're, I realize there's a bunch of people that are going to listen and they're going to have their opinions. And I'm not trying to say that I'm right and you're wrong when I share this stuff. By and large, uh, studies, as I understand it, show that uh, masks show an initial effectiveness. They do. And it is the longer that you are in an environment, masked or not, that you're in a, uh, an environment without ventilation, that that risk continues to climb, right? And that just has to do with sort of the, the, the density of things. If you have uh, exposure and you know, time and the ability to fill a space, your probability of exposure continues to increase until it goes to 100%, essentially. Sure. So uh, this is not a follow the science or pick your favorite scientist or anything else. This is just basic studies of like air movement and volume and uh, how many particles per million and so forth. And you just keep getting the density up to a point of critical mass if you're exposed and you don't have adequate ventilation. So it is what it is. You know, the masking is a physical barrier that changes the ventilation characteristics, but it's not going to work completely if you're in a closed environment. And schools are like that. So uh, it'll be tricky. I'm not sure how I feel about the policy response so far. I mean, I know what I, I know I don't like masks wearing them, but it's not that's not science. It's just me going like, I don't, don't like to wear a mask. I'm hot and inconvenienced and, you know, boo-hoo, poor me kind of crap. Right. But And people can't see whether I'm smiling. They know whether I'm telling them a story. Right. I mean, my sarcasm is way less effective with a mask. It on. really is. <laughs> so, so, you know, it's it's a tricky one. I, I will, I'm going to fall back to, I don't feel like I am medically qualified on this one, but my sense is in the absence of all the, inf we talked earlier about, you know, where do you get the right information and so forth. I still err on the side of caution, you know, as opposed to being flagrant. And, and that's just my take on it. And my, you know, my take on like the vaccination status is I think it's really hard to get a mass conspiracy to get a bunch of scientists and manufacturers to all knowingly or even unknowingly manufacture something harmful on purpose in in multiple varieties right i mean i just think that the the probabilities and statistics are pretty pretty compelling and me saying the actuary in me says I, it's just I, I i sometimes have trouble just tracking balancing a checkbook <laughs> you know, or or when when I my wife and I spend on something and I go like, hey, look at the statement here. I, what is that? And it's like, I don't remember. Right. I mean, like we do that sometimes with each other. Sure. Now. And I'm going, well, how do you get a giant organization with tons of people to not catch it? <laughs> right? How do you sneak it through? It just doesn't seem like the probabilities are there for that. Really, it doesn't. Right. And and this is the key. Really, there is a market allegory here. Oh, good. And, yes. I was I mean, wondering is, if that was going to be possible. Yeah, it is possible. And it is. it has to do with... So this is... This, I'm going to now... We're going to pivot slightly to something more fun. Something called the efficient market hypothesis. Okay? So the efficient market hypothesis... Is, isn't the hypo hypothesis the thing that connects A squared and B squared? 
No, that's the Pythagorean theorem. And that's the hypotenuse. I'm Correct. sorry. Yes. Yeah, it was close, but totally different. I did attend a, a trigonometry class at one point. At night, yes. Decades ago. <laughs> so so the, the efficient market hypothesis, what's interesting about that is here, the, the theory is that everything that is known about the price or about, about a stock is reflected in the price. Like an investment, it's all reflected in there. Okay. And there are sort of two versions of the theory, the strong theory and the weak theory. So the weak theory suggests that there are some things that are maybe not known by the price, and it's inside information, right? If you know stuff that somebody else doesn't, like, oh, I, I know that uh, we're a, a bio... Uh, like a pharmaceutical company, we have something in development, and we know that we're going to we have we have data that's not yet public that indicates that our product does really well at fighting a common disease. Okay, and this is the weak theory. The weak theory says that uh, that inside information isn't baked into the stock, and so it could change the price, right? Uh, and the strong theory suggests that it even knows that that the inside information shouldn't really be able to to challenge it, or or that. And I'm 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 mista- I'm speaking I'm saying it wrong I'm saying it wrong the, the strong theory inside information doesn't count the weak theory is that there are other influencers that may not necessarily be known that come down to human behavior but they're not very applicable hmm. and the the idea is simply that the market knows the price what you see is what you get if you believe in the efficient market hypothesis then you're probably an indexer right that means I'm just going to buy index funds own them because they're low cost and I'm going to just buy them and hold them and get on the way. Ride the wave. Yeah, because the market already knows and I can't outsmart it, so I'm not going to try. If it's a weaker form of the hypothesis, then you may say, well, I might be able to produce some competitive advantage if I know tricks. If you can anticipate the, the new information, if you can anticipate people's emotional responses and be ahead of the curve, yeah. So maybe then you can do better. Predictive guessing with something that's a good indicator that that gives you a, a, a potential advantage. But there's something else that's not often talked about: mechanical advantages, right? Things like how high frequency trading tends to work. I can see the order that you place before it gets there, and I can front run your trade, right? I can change my behavior in anticipation of yours that's coming through because I can get ahead of it. I can remember a whole program, I believe it was Radiolab, where they were talking about the length of the cords between the New York Stock Exchange and the place where the servers were stored next door. Mm-hmm. And it used to be that for a while people would try to shorten the cords to get that extra nanosecond. And so finally they rented space, the New York Stock Exchange, and they made all the cords the same length. And so it didn't matter where in the room next door you were, it was going to be the same length as the other cords. Right. And it was, the idea is that they were moving toward a zero latency response. Okay. Now we see this in other things. It's interesting for like Starlink, the internet delivery, low, low satellite, earth, low, low earth orbit satellite system that's gone out. Uh, you know, that's a, a low latency internet provider. And, you know, it's this uh, unique computer processing that they're doing that's really kind of cool. But that was the issue, right? And so the whole idea of efficient market hypothesis is that the price is known. It's built in there. And I think that that is sort of along the lines of how the vaccine works, is that when you think about how they were developed, that 
there's lots and lots of points of oversight. And you either have to believe that the, the number of developers all simultaneously had the ability to have somebody that was in a superposition of knowledge that could filter through and navigate all of the other human incompetencies to sneak it through. Or it was just so much oversight that the, the more likely is it's you probably actually watered down the result and what you got was what you got. I mean, I, I but I, I just, I don't think, here's the funny joke, right? I, like, I don't think it was Bill Gates monitoring me. And if he was, the good news is every time my computer crashes, I could just start yelling at him and he'll know. <laughs> so, and with that, we will take our last break because that was ridiculous. <laughs> All right. Look, we got one more segment to go, and we're going to conjure something up, but we got to take our obscene profit break first. So stick around. We'll be right back. This is Dave Littlejohn. And Derek Simmons. You got True Wealth on News Radio 1240 KQEN. Hey gang, welcome back to the True Wealth Radio Show, and uh, I've got special guests joining me today, Mr. Derek Simmons. Always a pleasure. Thanks for joining us, as always. And um, I am going—I'm going to ask the question uh, at the at the break. I said, "So, how do you feel about universal basic income?" And Derek said, <laughs> "I don't necessarily want to live in that lab, that economic lab." You know, I talked about this earlier, how it would be really interesting to see a COVID-like experiment if it were in a controlled environment where it wasn't affecting your personal life, right? Right. Well, same thing with universal basic income. So I've seen some studies where people are given uh, basic income for a while and the things that they spend it on. And generally, by and large, they're things that the world would approve of. They spend it on food, clothing, shelter, medical care, all the things that we want everyone to have. But it does screw with the market in ways you can't anticipate. And in small in small groups, you're not going to see the uh, high-level effects that you would if you tried to do it for everybody. And, again, we're borrowing from our great-grandchildren to finance this experiment. Yeah, yeah, I think you're right. Uh, here's where I thought it was interesting, right? And... Yeah, I come from the conservative perspective. I don't claim a lot of political party affiliation because largely I find them similar, even though they pretend to be different. And I have philosophies behind how I vote, not parties. But uh, coming from a more conservative fiscal vantage point and a fairly moderate and agnostic social vantage point, uh, my take on universal basic income is that I might even be willing to try it. I know this is sound crazy. You're like, wait a second, what? And you call yourself a hold up. If we were to trade out the other welfare programs that are in existence, right? I would not stack it on. It would be in lieu of. But what we're effectively doing at that point is saying, well, we're not going to try to incentivize specific behaviors through specific programs. Instead, we're going to say, here is some money. Spend it where you think it best. The challenge is, are we culturally willing to let people suffer the consequences of their decisions? Sure. And I think that that is a much harder thing for people to digest. This is one that is absolutely relevant in our finances every day. I know we talked about this this morning. We did. Right. 
I personally disagree with the idea of canceling student debt. I mean, I, like, like in, in general, I disagree with it because I think it incentivizes poor decisions. If you thought, I can go get an education for whatever I want, it doesn't matter whether it's valuable or not, I'm just going to sort of defer down the road, use those student loans to carry me for a season, and then afterwards, I don't have to pay them back. I'll just do whatever I feel like. I think that that is a, another pernicious incentive for poor behaviors. And so I don't like it. Does it mean I wouldn't be willing to make some trades? Hey, I, I kind of like the rural uh, forgiveness programs. We need teachers in rural areas. We have trouble getting them. You have student debt as a teacher. You go and put in and, and make a trade out for time in a rural community and we, your debt is forgiven. I like programs like that a lot more so than just saying, oh, you ran up a whole bunch of student debt. Ah, you're good. Whatever. Yeah, and when we when we incentivize teachers in rural communities, for example, that's the government saying they're going to pay them back. In some industries, it's not the government that you owe money to, but lots of times they can transfer it in. We've got the same sort of a program for uh, physicians right? in rural counties, and we need them. We absolutely need them. And right. without the incentives, they would not come to our area. They would stay in the giant cities. Right. And so I do think that those have... Uh, merit for consideration, right? I think it's case by case. I don't know that I like the idea of just setting something up forever and saying this is just how it is because oftentimes these social experiments fail. <laughs> One of the things about the economic experiments that you see is that in, an incentive that works for a certain percentage of the people absolutely will not work for another percentage. Correct. So there's no way to capture them all. Yeah. And similarly, a policing program that tries to eliminate waste will work to catch a certain number of people, and it won't for others. It will have no deterrent effect. It will not affect their behavior at all. So it's really hard to capture everybody in that. Yeah, it's that, that really is well stated, too, because so many folks, I mean, how many of you guys know the person that says, well, I'm not going to do it just because you want me to, so, but it's in your best interest. Don't care, won't do it. There are right? people like there that. are people that are just defiant. It's like, well, whatever you would want me to do, I will do the opposite. It's like, well, stop harming yourself. Nope, gonna harm myself. What? Like that is not in your best interest. Can't stop them. And then sometimes you try. Go beat yourself overhead with a stick, and they're like, oh, I see what you're doing there. It's the reverse psychology. Now I'm not gonna do it. Right. Or you don't want me to do it, so you're trying to do reverse. Class. So I'll yeah. do it anyway. I'm like, I can't win, you know. And there are those people. This is this is the challenge with, for example, trying to address homelessness. I know uh, in different environments, you and I have spoken in, uh, with different groups and sort of tried to wade through this. And there is a percentage of the population that's not all of the people that are homeless. A lot of people that are homeless that don't want to be. And there's a small percentage that actually does. And that's really hard to deal with because when you say we want no homelessness, you know, but there's some people that kind of like, I mean, that's the, the lifestyle that they're seeking. Does it make sense to me? I, I don't under, I don't get it, but they do. So how, you, you can't legislate that away. I remember we, we discussed the Utah program where they tried something. They reallocated money that they had for public welfare in other areas. And they said, housing first. What we're going to do is make sure that everybody's housed, except that. They actually made choices in there. They said, first of all, we're not going to take the short-term um, unhoused. We're only going to take the folks who have been unhoused for six or eight months, something like that, or longer. And you're not going to take the people that have been 
unhoused for five years. That's likely, you know, something that they actually prefer. But we are going to get the giant middle group mm-hmm. and try to get them housing first. And so then what we did was we researched whether it was going to um, how, how it had fared going forward. And the money that was there the first year was not there the second year. So we didn't get to see how it would work as a long-term experiment. Yeah. And that's not surprising, too. I and mean, those are things that we oftentimes don't get enough time for the data to really tell you much. And that that is a, a gripe of mine. It's a subject for another show. But it's the taking credit or blame for things that aren't deserved because they really didn't have long enough to gestate to see what the outcome was. Right. And we love to do this politically where my team was responsible for this thing. And like that thing probably took years to materialize. But yeah, let's try to take credit for it. Or that thing's somebody else's team. I don't like that game very much. And occasionally you'll find one where somebody takes credit and then a few years later wants to furiously backpedal when it explodes. <laughs> yeah. So I again the fiduciary in me that likes to disclose says, Well, I can't necessarily take credit for any of this, but it's nice that it happened on my watch. So uh, yeah, but anyway, well, look, as we near the end of the show, well, I, I will simply sum it up as this. Uh, there's a lot going on out there. And so if you find yourself in a position where you could use a hand, whether it be legal or financial, we know a few folks. Like I know this lawyer, I believe it's Simmons Law. Simmons Law, 541-677-7185. All right. Or you go to little John fs.com or you can give us a call at 541-375-0898 but that is the music and we are officially out of time so anything else for the good of the order sir nope have a great week all right well then hearing none we will say that this radio show is officially adjourned and we are going to get out of here so thanks again until next time this has been david littlejohn and Derek simmons and you've been listening to true wealth on news radio 1240 kqen The preceding program was paid for by Little John Financial Services. The opinions and views expressed may not reflect those of Brook Communications, its affiliates, or its employees.